the mic drop moment was me getting through a lot of the uh, mental health issues I was dealing with. I was diagnosed with severe depression, I have PMDD. So like a lot of really messy things when it comes to interacting with the public and being social. And it was the, the moment when I really came into myself and people were like, damn, I think was when I finally was like, hey, this is part of me and this is this makes up who I am and it doesn't change who I am. But I just want someone else to know that they don't have to hide if they're going through this because this is who I am. That's my guest today on episode four of the Mic Drop Moment. She's the founder of The Engaging Educator, a company that is all about helping professionals build their unapologetic, authentic, and best voice for communicating through improv-based education. Her work's been featured in Fast Company, Ford's Bustle, and Money-ish. And she's given three TEDx talks on the power of improv in our daily lives. Jen Olinachek brown is also the author of two books about communicating at work. Her latest, Think on Your Feet, Tips and Tricks to Improve Your Impromptu Communication Skills on the Job, is an instant favorite on my bookshelf. And I didn't actually know her before I reached out. She's the first guest I didn't know before contacting to talk on the show. And I'm really happy she said yes. Originally, I found her because we had the same website designer. And I thought, wow, her website's awesome. And that's why I found Jamie Varon, who did MikeAnino.com, as well as the art for the Mic Drop Moment. So I'm really happy that Jen said yes. And here is our conversation talking about business, art, communication, public speaking, and all of the other stuff that comes along with running a business. So you have a story to tell. And you wonder, how can you own the stage, give that killer speech, and captivate the audience? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment, where I bring you bold conversations with public speaking powerhouses, expert advice from personal development leaders, and many public speaking and storytelling masterclasses to give you real-life valuable takeaways to craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your Mic Drop Moment. Let's get started. I'm always really curious about how people end up where they are, especially when someone's an entrepreneur and they've created an entire new business that doesn't feel that connected to what they used to do. So I was curious with Jen how she went from acting to art history to museum professional to running the engaging educator and fearless. And this is what she had to say about her journey. I was a theater and dance whatever you want to call it. I performed in Milwaukee. I trained at Second City in Chicago. I was in Tony and Tina's for a while. I did dinner theater. And then I moved to New York and it wasn't fun because being an actor and being an improviser in Chicago is like amazing. Everyone is so giving. The community is wonderful. I was getting paid and not just like, here's $50. I was like making a living off of being an actor. And I go to New York and I'm like, oh, this is going to be fine. It's going to be the same. It's going to be hard because it's New York. So it's going to take a while. But it was like beyond soul crushing how terrible it was with the awful plays, the random basement theaters. I still remember performing in my off-Broadway theater that you're like, oh, it's off-Broadway. It's going to be great. And during a show, we like crushed a roach on stage, which is vile. And not, and there was a mouse that ran across stage once and all, oh, it was not good. So I, of course, was like, oh, I'm going to go into a sensible field like art history. That sounds smart. 
and not at all, again, because I really like talking to people and I really like making things accessible and connecting. So when I was in art history, I was like, man, y'all need to learn how to pivot. You need to learn improv. So I started teaching improv to like my museum educator friends and now I'm here. And so when you first started teaching people this, did they say like, hey, we want to be just like you? Or did they think like, what is going on with this? It was definitely both. I mean, I was, my supervisors at the Guggenheim jokingly called me the show pony because whenever there was a big donor or a really nerve wracking tour, they're like, let's give it to Jen because she's not going to be rattled. So I was like, all right, cool. So my coworkers were like, wow, like we, how do you pivot? How do you just know how to talk to your audience and connect with them? And you pick up these little bits of information that I didn't even hear this person say, but you heard it. And so part of them were like that. And then part of them were like, what are you having us do? Why are we playing theater games? Why are we doing weird zip zap zopping all in the galleries? Like this makes no sense. And I think that really sums up how people learn because some people need to be front loaded of like, this is why we're doing this thing. And then some people will be like, oh, this is why we're doing this thing. And then some people are totally like, I don't care. This is just a lot of fun. Oh, man. Or I don't care. This is terrible. That's like like the four types of people like this is fun. This is helpful. Now I see this is helpful. And this is terrible. I hate people. I've definitely when I was uh, when I've been teaching people improv in corporate before doing workshops on it or public speaking. There's definitely that side of people where you get like the eye where someone is looking at you. They're like, "Oh yeah, bring it on. This is fun. What are we doing? I'm down." And then that other one, what you're saying is the person is like, "I don't care what you do. You could like like baby Jesus could write." come in here right now and yes and me and I don't get the value of this. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I worked for a team building company before I started my business and the the rules in the team building company because you know a lot of team building is improv at its core. It's not rocket science. We're all doing similar aspects of it. And the rule with them though was they didn't want you to talk about why it was all about the fun and the team. So these activities no matter how much they helped public speaking or communication or anything no why was said. And I'm like, fine, I work for someone else. I'm going to do it the way you want it. I don't agree with it, but that's what happens when you work for someone else. And I was doing a workshop and I still remember how angry the group was getting because they were like, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? And in one activity, one of the people actually tore his Achilles tendon because he thought the point of the activity was to be super competitive and like run around. So he did like a false start trying to take someone's spot in this ridiculous, the kitty wants a corner game. I don't know. (laughs) Right. So you're like literally trying to take someone's spot. It's like musical chairs on speed. And he tore his Achilles during a team building event because he's like, it's all about the competition. It's so funny. I always make this joke of whenever, you know, I go in a group and they're scared. You know, it's so funny how people are. They get in front of people. They stand on stages. They do these big business things. They make big choices. And yet the thing they're most frightened of is this like private closed room improv session. Mm -hmm. And I always say at the beginning, like, hey, there's no need to be worried. No one has ever gotten hurt or died from improv. But I should probably, it sounds like I should update that. I think you should update the hurt part because I've definitely gotten hurt on and off stage. Like, I don't know about you. Like, I jumped off stage because I did a comedy sports derivative. So we were up on a stage, maybe like two feet. And both when I was refing, I would, I had fallen up the stage, like jumping up and like bit it 
once. And I guess it was more of a bruise, but I jumped off stage in Converse because like every good improviser, we all wear cons at some point or another. Mm -hmm. And I ended up breaking two bones in my foot. Oh my gosh. So improv can be dangerous. I'm not the only one. Like we definitely have had massive bruises and like fractures and things like that. So I, it, it depends on how like ruthless your crowd is. If they're like ready to go, tell them the last person that you talked to broke her foot in improv and see if I'm they can top them. it. I'm going to tell them that. You know, it actually reminds me at Improv Olympic one time in Chicago, we were doing this thing and somebody did a lift and they tried to do like a, a dirty dancing Oh lift no, oh no. And it didn't go well and literally launched the, the it was two guys, literally launched one of the guys into what would have been the audience. There wasn't much of an audience uh, and totally smacked his chin on a chair and he was like bleeding profusely from it. So actually this is true. This is, you can get hurt in improv. See, it, it happens. And I think we, at least when I was a performer, I didn't think about that as much. And I definitely don't tell the folks that I teach now because I think so many of them, I don't know about you, but a lot of people that sign up for programs with us, they have some kind of social anxiety going on. They have a lot of nerves. They're already anxious. The fact that they showed up and didn't punk out or they didn't call in sick that day is like, props to all of you. So I think if I would tell someone like, oh, I was just talking to someone and at, at IO, there was profuse bleeding during a scene. They would probably go to the bathroom and never come back. If you like this episode with Jen, then please hit subscribe and join us on future episodes of The Mic Drop Moment. How did you go from being the show pony trainer of all of the folks you worked with at the Guggenheim to creating the engaging educator, which was taking kind of all of your experiences and turning them into one really cool business. I think I just, I'm, I've always been a person and I, I don't know if it's the improv in me, if it's the, I don't do, do status quo. I really like the idea of challenging myself. So I was like, this is cool. There's a lot of people and New York has a really strong museum scene. So I was like, I'll see and I'll rent studio space that I used to go to for auditions and I'll put up two classes on a Saturday and see if anyone shows up. Like, we'll see what happens. And the first one sold out within like 10 minutes of me listing it and putting it on my Facebook. And then the second one sold out. And I was like, whoa, there's something here. And I still remember talking to my roommate and I'm like, I think I have something. And he's like, never say that. Don't get cocky. Don't get in your head. And I was like, whatever, dude. Like now, now he's like, oh my God, you've done so well after seven years. And I'm like, remember that time you told me not to get cocky? Um, but at the same time, that was one of my biggest lessons in a business because I didn't charge people until they got there because I was just going to charge like five or 10 bucks a person. I can't remember. But about half of them ended up not showing up. So I had this little tiny class for the second one and like a fine amount of people in the first one. So that was like my first business lesson of like charge people in advance if I wanted to keep doing this. So from that moment, I was like, whatever, I'll just see what happens. And I've always been very reactionary to what is happening in my business. Like we were teaching classes at random spaces, at co-working spaces, at audition studios. And we got two people from Saks Fifth Avenue that signed up for a class, even though it was for educators. And they were like, oh, we hope it's okay because we run leadership and development in our in at Saks for the men's ready-to-wear division. I hope it's cool that we're here. And I was like, yeah, whatever. You're an educator. Like, we're all working on these skills. And then I realized that there were so few 
improv offerings at the time in New York that were only for professionals. So like no actors, no one that wanted to be on stage, no one that wanted to perform. And when I realized that niche, I was like, okay, now I have something and this is the direction I'm going. Not just educators, not just museum folks, but very specifically not actors. And how long was it for you from that moment when you said, wait a second, there's a bigger audience to reach here. And to the point that you said, okay, this is a, this is a thing. This is happening. It is working. How long was that period? Oh my gosh. I still question it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's the, the nature of running a business because I kept my job at the Guggenheim. I kept my museum jobs until I left New York because the whole idea and whether that be the actor in me, whether that be the New Yorker in me, I didn't want to be in a place where I was heavily struggling. So even though I knew that EE was doing well and I was hiring people and I had other teachers and we were getting larger corporate clients, I was still working, which makes for really fun 2 a.m. emails when you're like, oh, let me respond to this client and cross my fingers. They don't see the timestamp on this because Google Scheduler didn't exist then. Now I can answer emails at one in the morning and just schedule them to go out in the morning so I look like a normal functioning human being. But it was <laughs> it was it was that like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then when I moved to Winston, I still was freaking out and one of the reasons why I wanted to move was so I could do the business full time. I spent like my first couple months here looking for a job, stupidly, because I was like, "Oh my god, what happens if this fails? Let me look for this job or let me apply to this job." All of that time I should have been spending on my business, but I think I was too afraid just to take that jump until I realized how much time I was spending looking for a job that could have been spent on my business. Isn't that interesting how we always put these these kind of rules around how we'll be successful or, or what it takes? And I don't know, I guess it's kind of classic plan B in a way, isn't it? The other thing I'm very interested in talking about is there's this huge library of offerings that you have at the Engaging Educator, but they're all very focused as well. Did those come from the community asking for it? Did you just sit down and say, this is the path to developing new things? Or how did you end up with such a robust set of offerings? So when you think about my past of being an educator, like I'm always thinking about objectives. I'm always thinking about what people take out of things. And when we just had the Improv for Professionals class, that single one, it was like every single class had a very different dynamic and a very different set of goals when they were coming in. I mean, one of the first things we do still to this date with every class that any facilitator teaches with EE or myself is ask people like, why are you here? Like, we know the description. We know what you're supposed to get out of this class. Why did you take time out of your evening to come to this program? And it just started going in different directions. Like, people were like, oh, I'm working on my public speaking. And we hit such a critical mass with that that we're like, why don't we just pull off public speaking and put that in a separate class? Because that's a different skill set. And then, oh, I'm here to work on pitching and storytelling. Okay, well, that's another one. Then we realized like confidence was a huge thing, a huge reason folks were showing up for class and signing up. We're like, oh, okay, let's pull that off. And it's really nice because we have a lot of rinse, wash, repeat clients that'll take, and, and students at that point, that will take multiple classes with us because they know that because it's so different being in a class full of nine other people or eight other people that weren't there the first time, you're working different skills, but also because we're really focusing on these different objectives that came from students. 
I can't say we've always been good at it. We've definitely had some classes that have crashed and burned over seven years. And like interviewing was one of them. We offered an interviewing class because everyone said that they wanted it. And I think no one signed up for almost a year and a half. And then I trashed the class. I was like, this is not working. No one wants this class. And I remember just thinking, I am still not happy. Like there is something wrong. I didn't feel like I was making a difference with my life. And I was like, I don't even know where to go from here. Like my whole career is marketing. Am I gonna reinvent myself, do something completely different? You see some people just pick up and just completely go open a bed and breakfast somewhere. You know, I'm like, what What am I gonna do? And I just remember sitting on the couch and stumbling upon RuPaul's Drag Race. That's Jackie Huba from episode three of the Mic Drop Moment. We talked about her book, Fiercely You, and how she created the nonprofit Drag Out the Vote, which is registering voters at drag events across the country. Hit subscribe and don't miss that episode and catch future episodes of the Mic Drop Moment. Now, back to my conversation with Jen. In your new book, Think on Your Feet, Tips and Tricks to Improve Your Impromptu Communication Skills on the Job, the first chapter is attending to your audience. And it sounds like that's really how you've you've kind of worked through the offerings for the engaging educator. Oh, I am not hypocritical in that aspect. I'm sure I'm hypocritical in other aspects. Could ask my husband. He'll probably say yes and friends, I'm sure. But when it comes to really connecting with folks, whether it be with your business, whether it be with a talk, whether it be in a class or clients, like I think so many people skip the audience. They think they know what they want. And I'm in a class, I, I constantly take classes about how to business because my background is not in business and I feel like no one truly knows what they're doing. So we all have to keep learning from one another. And every single class I take, it's always like, who's your customer? Who's your ideal customer? And for me, I'm like, oh, I already know that. Like, that's the easiest part for me because I'm always thinking about my audience. I'm always thinking about the person I'm talking to because otherwise I'm just talking at them whatever that looks like. I'm just throwing classes that I think they want, or I'm having a conversation and just giving word vomit on them as opposed to really having a true conversation where it's give and take. And do you think that that same in, in the work you do teaching people, and I know you do a lot of coaching with, with folks who are giving speeches and, and you mentioned politicians as well. Do you think that that's one of the issues that people aren't considering who is in this audience today? Absolutely. I mean, when even thinking about people that say, say, let's take a politician and asking about their audience. They'll say, oh, they're my constituents. And it's like, okay, like who? And when you start getting specific and you get that glazed over look, and then it gets even worse when you say, okay, well, what do they want? Well, they're here to listen to me. No, 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 no. They're not just here to listen to you because they could be watching Netflix right now. So like, why are they here? Like, what do they want from you? They want to feel like they're being heard. They want to feel like you're actually going to do something about the issues. And I think people don't take that pause and that beat to really think about what that audience wants from them. And the second you do that, the game has changed because then you start playing to their wants as well as using your wants. So you're compromising in that sense. And people then start listening to you. And that's when people are like, oh my gosh, this person is such a great speaker. Or, oh, I felt like I was really heard or I really believe them. That's when things like charisma start clicking in because someone is actually in tune and present with the people around them. I love that. And in the book, you you 
one I think it's a great masterclass, just like right off the top of the top of the book. It's not only who is the audience, but you talk about where you are and who you are and how you show up and when this is. Can you talk a little bit about why those things are also important for for you to be able to nail your message? Absolutely. So in I mean, it all comes from the idea of like when you're really setting up a great improv scene and when you're really having a great improv moment, because you're it depends on the school of thought that you believe in. You're either creating something from nothing or creating something from everything. And if things aren't firmly defined, if the like certain things like what your relationship is with the person you're talking to, where you are, what you want, and how you feel, then you're going to get this weird mishmash of an improv scene where you're going to get someone calling someone mom when they're actually a dad, or there's going to be a confused bit of information sharing. And that happens in conversations because if you don't understand like where you're located in the sense of like, where are you in the relationship with this person? Where are you in what you want with this person? As well as like how you feel, how they may feel about the situation, what they want, like we were just talking about, and then your actual relationship. Are you friends? Have you met for the first time? Is this your boss? Is there a status thing going on? If you take the time out to identify those things in the beginning, that conversation has a North Star. It has a focus. It has a point. As opposed to like dancing around and being like, oh man, I don't know if they know what I want. Or, oh, I wish I knew what they felt about me. Sure, those things are going to change and flex within the conversation. But if you take a second beforehand just to like rattle off, like, okay, what's my relationship with the person I'm about to talk to? Where am I? That one's usually easy. What do I want? What do they want? And then how do they feel? Like, for example, I had a coaching call earlier this morning with someone that I'm working with and worked with for a while. And I'm like, okay, well, this person's a client of mine. They want to get better at their public speaking because they're looking to get a raise or promotion. I want to help them. She's not terribly thrilled with who I am right now because (laughs) she doesn't like the fact that she has to push this skill. She thinks that her message is strong enough and what she does elsewhere, but her public speaking is not doing so great and specifically public speaking with clients. And I like her because she's a nice person and I want to help her. So going in, I'm never going to take a more authoritative stance with her because she's already skeptical of growing this skill. I'm going to play everything I'm talking to her as in her best interest. I'm going to frame everything very specifically of if you do this better, think of how easier your job will be and you'll actually be able to do the things you want to do versus someone who might be really excited to work with me and like, yes, I know I need to improve this. I don't have to do as much selling with that person on why this skill is important. So even then, it makes my conversation so much easier. And then you can start in the middle as opposed to start in the very, very beginning where you know nothing. And it seems like even in in leadership roles, this kind of thing is because the book is very aimed at the different, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of great content in here, but a lot of different places where in work situations, you would find yourself having to communicate. And it seems like even a leader sitting down to give someone feedback, this same idea would make it so much more effective. Absolutely. I think that's why so many people are scared of giving feedback because, well, one, they don't give good feedback. So they're just used to giving bad feedback and they're just used to getting bad feedback. But when we're having conversations, I think we've, as a society, we're just not doing well listening and responding, being specific, really getting to the point. 
because we're so worried about feelings and emotions and like all of this other stuff that we're overthinking when a lot of people just want information, like like they want to be direct. They want to just hear it. They don't want someone dancing around. They don't want to be blindsided by something. If you're being super nice to someone and you give them some terrible feedback, that is so disingenuous and inauthentic. It just feels weird. If you build it up in the sense of like, hey, I'm going to say something that I'm really not excited to say, or hey, I'm going to say something that might be really hard to hear. I do want to give you feedback because I want you to grow. And you're being very transparent about what you want, what they want, what the situation is. Then you can actually make some progress in communication as opposed to, I don't know about you, but I've had so many bosses and supervisors, even people that managed me when I was working for folks, that I was like, you are a terrible communicator. You just like, like, I don't know what you think I'm hearing, but I'm not hearing a message that is cohesive at all. And there's such a big part of why, you know, in company culture or why people don't get behind initiatives that is really related to the story that you're telling as a leader. And that's the like charisma is something that people don't lean into as much. And it's such an easy trait to start developing in leaders. Like you have to be able to trust the person that's leading the ship. The captain of the ship has to be someone that you believe in. Otherwise you're going to end up doing weird passive aggressive stuff. You're not going to work as hard. You're going to be like, ugh, I'm not going to put as much effort into this thing that this person is telling me is going to be good because I don't trust this person because they're not communicating well. And there's such little fixes that you make eye contact more. Okay, you've increased trust right there. You pay attention and be in the moment, not be on your phone or thinking about what's happening 10 steps down the way. Be in the moment and be present when you're talking to someone. That's such an easy fix for some people. But so many leaders are like, oh, I have so many things going on. I can only be half present because I'm so busy in the busy culture. And it's like, well, that's the problem with your culture because you're not spending the time to care about the people who work for you. So why should they care about you and what you have to say? And how have you helped people with on the public speaking side of things with those same charisma hacks in front of a bigger audience? I think it's really the idea of of building it and scaffolding it. So it has to start small. You can't just go right into something. And And I say that even though I did – 100% coach someone in two weeks for a TEDx talk that she came to me and she's like, I need help. I have a talk coming up. And I was like, cool. When is it? And she's like, it's in two weeks. And I was like, awesome. We can do this. And she's like, it's a TEDx talk. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Did you start? And she was like, no. And it's on blockchain and cryptocurrency. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and I have to do it while standing on one leg or something, right? Ah, no, but she she did great. It, But it was it was a, a ton of grueling work for her. Like we were meeting for four and five hours at a time every single day, running it and running it and running it and running it. So when it's a normal person in a normal situation where you've given yourself ample time to build these skills, it's building them in the safe space of an improv, in coaching, in a class, and then trying them out in real life in a very simple way. So for example, you can build your charisma by telling more stories and really leaning into the idea of storytelling because we believe people, not like spinning huge tales of lies, but if you're using a story to illustrate a point, 
So if you learn how to tell a good story or at least a consistent, cohesive story that has a beginning, middle, and end, it has a point, it's packaged nicely where it has a hook where you're kind of drawn in and a button, and you've practiced this with a coach or in a class, you can use that skill maybe when you're at a networking situation, at the like at work, at the coffee pot, and you're testing it out. Then, great, it works great, or you need to workshop parts of it. Maybe you do it in a presentation next time. You're not just going to go from zero to 60, like, I've never told a story before. Let me present to 300 people and tell an amazing story, unless you really put the work mm-hmm. in. So it's that like safe space practice that builds itself into real life. Yeah. And what is your take in those times where someone is giving that that bigger speech? What's your blend? Because you know, for me, I'm an improviser, and then I also practice the art of, well, sometimes we're doing scripted written things and we need to rehearse. And so there's this balance between those two. How do you, what's your take on that? If someone's working on a story, they are going to give it in front of 300 people. What's the balance between being in the moment and also being very scripted and rehearsed? I'm going to tap back into my audience. It depends on that person. Some people Mm -hmm. really need to practice beats and need to practice moments and need to, and and I don't think anyone needs to over rehearse and I don't think anyone ever needs to memorize things word for word. So let me say that to begin. I think some people, they need to practice these different beats like I said, in a story and do it like loudly, do it really excited, do it. I tell people to practice with different genres. So we throw on like, all right, do it like you're in a rom-com or do it like you're in a horror movie just to find vocal variants and to find some playfulness of it. And some people, they can riff a little better. They just need to know the points. They don't necessarily need to practice them. I do think everyone needs to at least put the words in their mouth at least once so they can hear what it sounds like or just pay attention to it and just feel like like if you're saying something that you don't normally talk about or if you're being a little more animated, like it really helps to at least have a run through in the beginning. But it really depends on that person and understanding your own learning style and understanding how you need to practice to be that best version of yourself, I think is critical whenever you're thinking about professional development. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's kind of like the idea of if you're going to tell a story, if you're going to open with a story, then just talk about it more. Talk about it with your spouse at coffee. Talk about it over here and over there so that when it comes time to do it elevated, it's just a story you know mm-hmm. and you know how to deliver it. So you were mentioning beats. Tell, tell us a little bit about beats. Why are those important? I think really thinking, especially when we're talking about storytelling, understanding like when is the beginning? When, is, when are you changing location, changing scenes, changing moments, changing feelings? And it's like, in a story, when using a client story as an example, a different, it's so funny, after I helped her with her blockchain cryptocurrency, I ended up actually being on call on retainer, I guess the best way to, is to describe it, with a cryptocurrency company working on their message and working with the founder consistently on how he was presenting himself and the company. And I learned more about that than I ever needed to. And his working with beats with him was really interesting because when he was he was speaking at a ton of different conferences all on crypto and and specifically that company's brand of crypto and what that looked like and when we were moving from point to point 
when I was when I was telling him, I'm like, okay, now your next beat is to start talking about the value. And he's like, wait, what what are you talking about? And I was like, well, just think of it as points in your speech. Like you've got the beginning, you're setting the stage. It's almost like the intro. And then in the middle, you're really de- deciding your value. You're talking about why they need to care about this, why you care about this. So I think I've simplified the idea of a beat to just move from different points. And I just tap into the the beat because you should be changing your emotion. You should be changing the emphasis because then that makes you a more dynamic speaker. Mm-hmm. It gives you a chance to kind of find, uh, maybe find some truth in it a little bit too. Mm-hmm. And I think with him in particular, it was his his opening beat, his opening was so he wanted the audience to like him specifically so much. And so he was like, I'm going to wear a really slick suit and I'm going to come on and make this joke that I've been working on and tell this story about how I'm the best look and legit. He's like, how I'm the best looking guy in the room because it's a room full of tech nerds. And I was like, yo, <laughs> like, if your focus, if your goal in this beat is to make people like you, that's not the way to do it. And and people lean on humor too often. They're like, oh, I'm just going to be funny. And it's like, if you're not a funny person, don't be funny because nothing is worse than a not funny person trying to be funny. And and the idea that humor and funny, like humor and joke are not always the same thing either. No. And and it's it's that finding that truth, like like you were saying, looking for, okay, you want people to like you? Well, why do you want people to like you? You want people to think you're a human and not just a company. So really, you're just trying to humanize in that moment. So that's your true goal. And telling a joke and wearing a like a super tight, slick suit when I could never, like I've been working with you for five months and I've never seen you in a suit, that's not going to work. So like what is humanized to you? What what does that look like with your audience? So that's the truth of it is like you dig in and discover what you're actually trying, your objective, what you're trying to get across, and you work towards that. Well, it's it's interesting too because probably I find a lot that people do some of those things because it's their own insecurity coming out. It's their own uh, their own kind of, I want to put up a wall so you don't see the real me, which makes me think in my awkward transition here, that I go back to your TEDx talk from 2016, when you spoke about elevating each other. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about the shine theory and a little bit about imposter syndrome. And I remember watching it and being really moved by this idea of, wow, we really do look at other people sometimes and say, why her? Why me? But then we also do that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we put on these personas. And so tell us a little bit about the shine theory. What What's that? Absolutely. So thinking about the, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm really upset that I'm going to butcher her name. So it's originally from Ann Friedman and um, Amina, Amina, <laughs> it's Amina, I know is the shortened version. And listen to the podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. So Ann and Amina talk about this. And it's this idea that you surround the people, you surround yourself with amazing women as opposed to being nervous that the amazing woman that you've admired from afar or are jealous of or whatever you got going on, as as opposed to thinking that they're going to take the piece of the pie that belongs to you. So it's the idea that we elevate one another by being around people that elevate us. So for example, I have a really great group of friends here in Winston-Salem. I love them dearly. Some of them do very similar things to what I do. And I'm not looking at them going like, ugh, 
why is she doing that? Or, oh, why did she get a client? Or, oh, why is that happening? I'm looking at them going like, hey, we should offer something together because that would be bomb. And we would absolutely kill it and help these people immensely. And five years ago, that wouldn't have been me. That would have been like, oh, I'm so scared that I'm going to lose this client to this other person that's doing it differently. And I think that's the difference with like normal human behavior of the scarcity mindset and like really like hugging things close to you and not being secure in who you are and what your offering is. Like your transition wasn't awkward at all because that's what this dude was doing. He was insecure because he wasn't a traditional tech dude. He was like this super gym. The best way to describe him was like a gym rat, like huge, bulky guy, really sweet, but super full of himself in all the different ways. So he was feeling insecure that he's going to walk into this techie convention and people are going to be like, oh, who's the meathead? And so because of that, he was overcompensating. And we get in our heads so often worrying about that opinion of what other people are going to think. And the faster you get away from that and realize that no matter who you are, no matter how nice you are, no matter how fake or authentic you are, someone is always going to dislike you. Always. Someone's always going to have something to say. So you might as well just embrace who you are and connect with folks that make you the best version of yourself as opposed to being around people that make you feel good because you're quote unquote better than or being jealous of people that are around you because they're quote unquote better than you because you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So I think that really encompasses that shine theory idea of like be around people that make you look good not just because they make you look good, but because you also make them look good because you genuinely care about casting your light on one another. And together, that light is so much brighter. I love that whole idea. And it it's, again, this is, you seem to be an incredibly consistent person and uh, and not a hypocrite at all. <laughs> and so was this part of the, in addition to the, to the engaging educator, you also have a business called Fearless. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Fearless. So Fearless actually came out of me being completely irresponsible and like legit. I, I sold a bunch of my curriculum to a leadership center here in, Winston, in, in North Carolina, actually. And they turned a lot, like sold in the sense of it's still mine, but they're using it to make like playing cards essentially for countries and organizations that don't necessarily have access to computer programs in the sense of they want to become better leaders. So like my cards are like in Rwanda and all of these amazing locations that I'm so proud to think about because they're improv activities that help you become a better leader. And cool, awesome, really exciting, cut me a huge check for it, worked on it for a really long time. And I was like, hmm, I could be super responsible and pay off some debt or I could do this thing that I've always wanted to do and make a clubhouse for women. And like I am totally enamored with like the wing and the riveter and all of those things. That's not what I ever wanted Fearless to be and that's not what it ever will be because Fearless is like, this incredible community of hyper-local women. So everyone's from like Winston-Salem, the surrounding area. And it's about 4,000 people large right now, which is insane to me because we've just been open a year and a half. And it's a place where women and non-binary folks actually can go 
whenever they need solace, whenever they need time away, whenever they want to teach a class, whenever they want to have a program. Like for example, tomorrow night, there's a free coding class that women were like, hey, Jen, we want to teach a coding class for people and we want to make it free. And I was like, awesome. Tell me when, here's the key, have a good time. And then like like Friday, there's a meetup of uh, like an environmental group that's going on in Winston in the sense of like getting people more aware of environmental issues. And it's headed by a woman. So it's this not revenue generating because no one gets paid from it. Like we literally pay our bills and that's it. Clubhouse that exists in the middle of downtown Winston-Salem, where even on Thanksgiving, the past th- this past holiday, Someone was like, hey, what restaurants are open tonight? And a member that has never met this other person said, hey, we eat at six o'clock. DM me for the address. We don't ask questions. So it's like this, and I'm I'm getting like choked up talking about it. It's Mm -hmm. this idea that there's too much garbage out there. Like clearly we're a progressive organization because it's a women's organization. And by nature, that's progressive and political. And clearly we're looking out for that type of person, but no one is ever going to be like turned away from fearless in any way, shape or form, as long as they come right in the sense of they're ready to listen, they're respectful of one another, they care about who they're talking to, and they're not telling someone that they're wrong. So if you're, if you come right, we say, and you're, you're being like a good human, then you're more than welcome And if you come in and you're like, oh, this is terrible. This is a cult, which we've had people because the patriarchy is very strong in the South. And they'll they'll come in and say, like, why do you need a space for women? Why can't men be here? And it's like, well, women decide if they want to invite men. They're more than welcome to, but they are invited guests. They are not welcome to come in on their own. So it is a very, um, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, it's co-working by day, like classes at night, online community. We have blind friend dating that happens. So if you need a friend, we do it monthly where you can like submit what you like to do and you get matched with someone else in the group that might have a similar interest and you go hang out. It's very cool. Oh, I love it. It's like a, it's like a entrepreneurial matchmaking in a way. It's so crazy because in the beginning, people were like, oh, it's going to be all business owners. And I was like, eh, I don't know. And it truly is everyone. Like there's a lot of moms. There's been a lot of mom groups that have come out of this. We have a 55 and up meetup group. We have like, it, it's literally just this, there was this huge gap in the area where And the reason why I started it is because I was at a coffee shop with a friend of mine and she was crying, telling me about something. And all these people are listening because it's a small town. And so it's super awkward because you've got like a random barista who you're going to see later who probably knows the dude you're talking about, like listening to you cry in the coffee shop. And I was like, why isn't there a place for women to just go and have these moments if they need to? And it's funny because like when we opened, people were like, oh my gosh, are people complaining about their husbands all the time? And I'm like, men generally don't come up in the space. Like it is, it is, we're not anti-men because I love my husband. He built our tables. His blood is just as much in the walls as mine is when we renovated. But it's very pro-women the space. Yeah. Yeah. A place to to go and kind of find find community yeah. that, that isn't easy to get in other places. It's really hard to make friends when you're an adult. Yeah. Very difficult. <laughs> and so are a lot of the people that end up at 
is it a lot of women who are entrepreneurs in some way, or it's really a broad range of folks who are coming in? It's really a broad range. I mean, because our programming is so eclectic that we end up getting a little bit of everything. During the day when it's co-working, there are a lot of entrepreneurs and people that work remotely because that's the nature of the person that would use a space that has like Wi-Fi and coffee and tables and snacks. And so, so in that sense, we get a lot of entrepreneurs and remote workers. But like for programming, we could get anything. And we're very open in the sense of like, hey, if you need to bring your kids, like you're responsible for your kids, but bring your kids if you need to. If you need to bring your dog, we have a, a someone who runs a dog walking company and sometimes she stops in just to grab a cup of coffee and she brings whatever dog she's walking. And it's like, it's a little bit of everything because it's there to be that safe space. Yeah, it's a physical manifestation of the shine theory. It, it really is. And I like how you said that I was very on brand because I am. Like I joke with people, if you hear me talk on the internet or see me tweet, like I'm going to be the same like spicy, random, really excited, but also closeted introvert person in real life. And so it makes me happy that I, I do seem on brand. So that's good. Yeah, let's talk about Twitter. You are one of my favorite people to follow on Ooh. Twitter. You know what? You're just honest. I am. You're for, really honest. For better or for worse sometimes. it's. In- I love Twitter because it is – clearly it's conversation. Like Instagram's great. Pictures, yay. Food porn, awesome. But when it comes to Twitter, there's just the, this, this listen and response. And so many people like – Talk about people that don't listen. People don't read, which is fascinating <laughs> to me. But my Twitter has definitely not got me in trouble. It's definitely sold out some folks in my life that shouldn't have been in my life. Like mm. I'm, I'm, I am very honest. I'm very outspoken. There is a lot of stuff that happens in my community specifically that is the status quo and is just accepted sometimes. And it's it's fascinating how many people are terrified to say something because of what could happen. And I have very little to lose. Like people know with Fearless, I'm not coming into something being like, oh my gosh, hey person that's like upholding this horrific racist standard. Let me just let you come in and welcome you. I'm going to be like, yo, this needs to stop. Like knock it off because I'm not looking to let the status quo be okay. And so on on Twitter, I'm like very outspoken with a lot some of that stuff in my community and legit, like not joking, someone in the community that I was ending a collaboration with spoke to a friend and said, Hey, you liked Jen's tweet. You shouldn't do that because it makes us look bad. And I'm like, oh my gosh, girl, like if you have that much time to check out who likes my tweets, I have tasks and I have things that you could be doing. Please back it up. So, so Twitter's fat. There's so many people that like are like ghost on Twitter, not in the sense of like ghost relationships, but like they stalk you a little bit and not in the cool way that we were talking about, in the creepy way. So it's just fascinating to me. I love it. And even in that response, one of the one of the ideas I really liked from the book, you were talking about the public speaking section and you talked about make it spicy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I love that even here, you're making it spicy even on Twitter. Well, you have to. I mean, the spice is whatever spicy is to you, because like in real life, everyone has different levels of spice. Like I'm super I, I went to Thailand with my husband. I love things that are actually like food spicy. So some people can't handle even the tiniest bit of hot sauce. And that's cool. That's fine. You have to find whatever your spice level is. So for me, because I am very transparent and because I am very authentic and what you see is what you get, 
And I've gotten, like I was saying, I've gotten to a point where someone is always going to dislike me. So I better like myself and I better like what I'm putting out there. In that sense, it's the same when you're making a presentation spicy or you're making a talk spicy. Like, what does that look like for you? Because it's going to look different than what spicy is for me because we are very different communicators. And that is good and that is okay. And that's what makes things interesting. Don't try to be me, for example. Don't try to be someone else because that's when it looks fake and that's when it looks disingenuine and inauthentic. If you like this episode with Jen, then please hit subscribe and join us on future episodes of The Mic Drop Moment. What do you think? When you look back at everything, when you look back at all the things you've done, has there been a moment where you said, there, uh, point to that moment, that was a mic drop moment for me where where things really change. And for me, a mic drop moment is all about, you're just kind of, I think you kind of live unapologetically yourself all the time, but a time when it resonated really strongly with an audience. I think a mic drop moment is kind of like humor where it's, if the audience isn't laughing, it's not humor. And I think a mic drop moment is it feels to you really great. And the rest of the world looks at it and says, ah, damn, that's some good stuff. Is there one that stands out to you in your life? I think I I have two actually. And one was starting fearless for sure. Um, because I was just like, I'm going to do this. And, and people were like, oh my God, how are you going to do this? I'm like, I have six months of runway. And if I don't work out in six months, I'll see what happens. And it was just like, this is me coming into myself and being, being who I want to be and doing what I want to do for this community. And that was definitely a mic drop moment, I think. Cause I was like, absolutely no hesitation. This happens. And I think the other one was a bit slower and I talk about it in, my first book, and I talk about it a lot on Twitter and things. And I think the mic drop moment was me getting through a lot of the uh, mental health issues I was dealing with. I was diagnosed with severe depression, I have PMDD. So, like, a lot of really messy things when it comes to interacting with the public and being social. And it was the, the moment when I really came into myself and people were like, damn, I think was when I finally was like, hey, this is part of me and this is this makes up who I am and it doesn't change who I am, but I just want someone else to know that they don't have to hide if they're going through this because this is who I am. And so it felt very like I took it and I I, I embraced what I was and, and all of my amazing qualities, but also all of my things that I want to get better and work on. And I think a lot of people looked at it and they both damn and good and bad. They were like, Ooh, that's really personal. Do you really want to talk about how you were like severely depressed? I mean, you're coming in to do like corporate stuff. And then at the same time, people are like, thank you so much for saying that because I think it's something that more people need to talk about. And I think it it humanizes, like talking about humanizing again, it humanizes you where I struggle just as much as someone with anxiety because I also have really severe anxiety at times. So I know what people are going through. And I think that was a, that, that's a, a mic drop moment that, might not look like one from the outside, but for me was very much like, boom, I'm, this is who I am. And the second I started owning that, the easier it became to both deal with it because now I'm like far into remission. Like it's always going to be part of me and it's always going to be a ghost that's there. But at the same time, moving forward from it, it was like, that's the moment that I finally accepted it and stopped hiding it and just moved forward with it. If you like this episode with Jen, then please hit subscribe and join us on future episodes of The Mic Drop Moment. 
So for a while, you worked with one of my other favorite companies, Museum Hack, which does these really cool, fun tours of museums like the Met and here in Los Angeles, the Getty. Did you ever run into anyone really funny or have any crazy kind of mic drop moments while you were giving people tours of the Met? We were doing like six tours a day at the Met because everyone wanted to go on this super cool, like secret sneaky tour where we would like sneak around and talk about sexy parts of the art and like cool information. But in Hack the Met, we also did a nighttime tour where we told people to bring alcohol. And this this ended very quickly because the Met shot it down very quickly. But I still remember there were two instances where I was like, what am I doing? I'm going to get kicked out of working in museums forever. Because at one point, a really prominent food critic, because we had very fancy people on our tour, like a very prominent food critic, we were in the elevator and he pulled out like a vape pen and he's like, do you want some hash? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, this is the end of my museum career right here and now. And it's fine because I'm wearing a cocktail dress in the middle of the Met with someone who I admire and read his food reviews and he has hash. And then the other one was like I was sitting on like we were in the the court afterwards and we like had our like little flasks in the galleries and I'm talking to this really amazing couple and they were so sweet and I love them so much. And we were talking about Twitter and the guy was like, oh, yeah, Twitter's like an audience in your pocket. And I was like, yeah, I don't really know. I like the idea of audience. I really think about it with my company a lot. And I was like, so what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm an actor and I'm a director and stuff. And I was like, cool. And I said, you should follow me on Twitter. I'll follow you. And it was Lynn manuel Miranda <laughs> before Hamilton. Like, I'm not joking. <laughs> It was the weirdest moment. Like we don't, he doesn't follow me anymore because he's fancy. And I've like, he probably has no idea about this chick that was like talking to him in a hack the net tour. But I still remember that moment going home and pulling out my phone and being like, oh my God, I asked Lynn manuel Miranda what he did for a li- What is wrong with me? And it was the most, most exciting and mortifying moment because he kind of snickered now looking at that. And I'm sure he was because he's the nicest man in real life. And mm-hmm. and I'm sure he was like, oh, she doesn't know who I am. And the actor in me died inside that I just did not place this adorable couple as Vanessa and Lynn. Ugh. Well, and it's one of those things that like out of context, it's like, oh, well, they, uh, you know, welcome to the museum. Ugh. But they were so and they were so nice. And I still like I was like, I really asked him what he did. And now I like listen to Hamilton on repeat. And I'm like, oh, my God, I met him. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Those times when you're like, but but if you had known in that moment, if you'd realized it in that moment, you probably would have shown up in such a different way. Oh my gosh, I would have lost it in the sense of I I used to run, like do junkets. I used to be a PA for junkets, and I would get so starstruck at times, and not in like an awkward like, oh my god, like, can I have your autograph? But in a like almost bit it in the elevator in front of Michael Caine, and like all different things. And so I would have shown up completely different in that moment. I love it. Oh my gosh, that's so fun! I would have died. I would have died if I met if if I had met him. So Ugh. I would have been. I would have been there with you, falling down and all of it. I'm so glad I got to die in the privacy of my own home, as opposed to the middle of the mat. And that is my interview with Jen Olinachek Brown. We talked about 
business, entrepreneurship, storytelling, being on stage, having hilarious encounters with celebrities at the Met, and business. You can grab a copy of Jen's brand new book, Think on Your Feet, Tips and Tricks to Improve Your Impromptu Communication Skills on the Job Everywhere Books Are Sold. You can learn more about Jen at jenbrown.co. And if you want to have a fun conversation, check her out at Jen Olinacek on Twitter. So it's time to dial up the volume on your voice, use your story, wake up the world, and find your mic drop moment. 